This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital, a Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume 1 by Karl Marx. Part 8, The So-Called Primitive Accumulation. Chapter 33, The Modern Theory of Colonization. Political economy confuses on principle two very different kinds of private property, of which one rests on the producer's own labor, the other on the employment of the labor of others. It forgets that the latter not only is the direct antithesis of the former, but absolutely grows on its tomb only. In Western Europe, the home of political economy, the process of primitive accumulation is more or less accomplished. Here the capitalist regime has either directly conquered the whole domain of national production, or where economic conditions are less developed, it at least indirectly controls those strata of society which, though belonging to the antiquated mode of production, continue to exist side by side with it in gradual decay. To this ready-made world of capital, the political economist applies the notions of law and of property inherited from a pre-capitalistic world with all the more anxious zeal and all the greater unction, the more loudly the facts cry out in the face of his ideology. It's otherwise in the colonies. There the capitalist regime everywhere comes into collision with the resistance of the producer, who as owner of his own conditions of labor, employs that labor to enrich himself instead of the capitalist. The contradiction of these two diametrically opposed economic systems manifests itself here practically in a struggle between them. Where the capitalist has at his back the power of the mother country, he tries to clear out of his way by force the modes of production and appropriation based on the independent labor of the producer. The same interest which compels the sycophant capital, the political economist in the mother country, to proclaim the theoretical identity of the capitalist mode of production with its contrary, that same interest compels him in the colonies to make a clean breast of it and to proclaim aloud the antagonism of the two modes of production. To this end, he proves how the development of the social productive power of labor, cooperation, division of labor, use of machinery on a large scale, etc., are impossible without the expropriation of the laborers and the corresponding transformation of their means of production into capital. In the interest of the so-called national wealth, he seeks for artificial means to ensure the poverty of the people. This Wakefield calls systematic colonization. First of all, Wakefield discovered that in the colonies, property and money, means of subsistence, machines, and other means of production, does not as yet stamp a man as a capitalist if there be wanting the correlative, the wage the other man who is compelled to sell himself of his own free will. He discovered that capital is not a thing, but a social relation between persons established by the instrumentality of things. We know that the means of production and subsistence, while they remain the property of the immediate producer, are not capital. They become capital only under circumstances in which they serve at the same time as means of exploitation and subjection of the laborer. But this capitalist soul of theirs is so intimately wedded in the head of the political economist to their material substance that he christens them capital under all circumstances, even when they are its exact opposite. Further, the splitting up of the means of production into the individual property of many independent laborers 
working on their own account, he calls equal division of capital. It is with the political economists as with the feudal jurists. The latter is stuck on to pure monetary relations, the label supplied by feudal law. If, says Wakefield, quote, if all members of the society are supposed to possess equal portions of capital, no man would have a motive for accumulating more capital than he could use with his own hands. And so long, therefore, as the laborer can accumulate for himself, as he can do so long as he remains possessor of his means of production, capitalist accumulation and the capitalist mode of production are impossible. capitalist production consists in this, that it not only constantly reproduces the wage worker as wage worker, but produces always in production to the accumulation of capital a relative surplus population of wage workers. Thus, the law of supply and demand of labor is kept in the right rut, the oscillation of wages is penned within limits satisfactory to capitalist exploitation, and lastly, the social dependence of the laborer on the capitalist, that indispensable requisite, is secured. An unmistakable relation of dependence which the smug political economist at home in the mother country can transmogrify into one of free contract between buyer and seller, between equally independent owners of commodities, the owner of the commodity capital and the owner of the commodity labor. But in the colonies, this pretty fancy is torn asunder. The absolute population here increases much more quickly than in the mother country because many laborers enter this world as ready-made adults, and yet the labor market is always understocked. The law of supply and demand of labor falls to pieces. On the one hand, the old world constantly throws in capital, thirsting after exploitation and so-called abstinence. On the other, the regular reproduction of the wage laborer as wage laborer comes into collision with impediments the most impertinent and in part invincible. What becomes of the production of wage laborers into independent producers who work for themselves instead of for capital and enrich themselves instead of the capitalist gentry reacts in its turn very perversely on the conditions of the labor market. Not only does the degree of exploitation of the wage laborer remain indecently low, the wage laborer loses into the bargain along with the relation of dependence, also the sentiment of dependence on the abstemious capitalist. Hence, all the inconveniences that our E.G. Wakefield pictures so doughtily, so eloquently, so pathetically. The supply of wage labor, he complains, is neither constant nor regular nor sufficient. Quote, the supply of labor is always not only small, but uncertain. Though the produce divided between the capitalist and the laborer be large, the laborer takes so great a share that he soon becomes a capitalist. Few, even those whose lives are unusually long, can accumulate great masses of wealth. End of quote. 
think of the harbor. The excellent capitalist has imported bodily from Europe with his own good money, his own competitors. The end of the world has come. No wonder Wakefield laments the absence of all dependence and of all sentiment of dependence on the part of the wage workers in the colonies. On account of the high wages, says his disciple Maryvale, there is in the colonies, quote, the urgent desire for cheaper and more subservient laborers for a class to whom the capitalist might dictate terms instead of being dictated to by them. In ancient civilized countries, the laborer, though free, is by a law of nature dependent on capitalists. In colonies, this dependence must be created by artificial means, end of quote. How then to heal the anti-capitalistic cancer of the colonies? The trick is how to kill two birds with one stone. Let the government put upon the virgin soil an artificial price, independent of the law of supply and demand, a price that compels the immigrant to work a long time for wages before he can earn enough money to buy land and turn himself into an independent peasant. It is, you add, a result of the appropriation of the soil and of capital that the man who has nothing but the strength of his arms finds employment and creates an income for himself, but the opposite is true. It is thanks to the individual appropriation of the soil that there exist men who only possess the strength of their arms. When you put a man in a vacuum, you rob him of the air. You do the same when you take away the soil from him, for you are putting him in a space void of wealth so as to leave him no way of living except according to your wishes. The price of the soil imposed by the state must, of course, be, quote, a sufficient price, end of quote, i.e. so high, quote, as to prevent the laborers from becoming independent landowners until others had followed to take their place, end of quote. This is nothing but a euphemistic circumlocution for the ransom which the laborer pays to the capitalist for leave to retire from the wage labor market to the land. First, he must create for the capitalist, quote, capital, end quote, with which the latter may be able to exploit more laborers. Then he must place at his own expense a locum tenens, a placeholder on the labor market, whom the government forwards across the sea for the benefit of his old master, the capitalist. However, we are not concerned here with the conditions of colonies. The only thing that interests us is the secret discovered in the new world by the political economy of the old world and proclaimed on the housetops that the capitalist mode of production and accumulation and therefore capitalist private property have for their fundamental condition the annihilation of self-earned private property, in other words, the expropriation of the laborer.